Uh, I don't know if you heard about uh, the three men who died and went to heaven. Uh, but they were standing there and St. Peter came out and said, Well, we've uh, instituted a new program. To get into heaven, you have to answer a question correctly. And they were like, what? And they're standing on the verge of heaven. And Peter looked at the first man and said, uh, uh, the Titanic was the greatest ocean disaster maybe of all time. What date did it sink? And the guy for a second was stunned and all of a sudden he said, April the 14th, 1912. And Peter goes, that's right, go on in. And the guy, oh, and he rushed in really quickly. I mean, really excited about it. Looked at the next guy and he said, uh, how many people died on that disaster? And the guy was like, uh, 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 he goes, 1,517. Peter goes, that's right, go on in. Looked at the next guy and said, name him. <laughs> God, God doesn't want to put roadblocks to heaven. God does not want to stop us from getting in. And, and, and maybe if there's just one thing I want you to grab tonight, it's that. He has a great, great desire for you and for I and for anybody to rise up to a place where, where we have overcome and his will has worked in our life and maybe in a circumstance as he intercedes and works with us. God is right in how he handles life. And, and when we look at the biographies or the lives of people, we ought to begin to see that more than ever. And we're looking at a man tonight, Jephthah, who was actually mentioned in the hall of fame of faith. In Hebrews 11 verse 32, it says, And what more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Now Jephthah is mentioned in a pretty amazing company, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, all of the prophets together. And the Lord says, Jephthah belongs there. Uh, he was not uh, born into an easy time. As a matter of fact, if we were to look back in chapter 10, we see that the children of Israel had turned away from worshiping just the Lord their God. They had bought it into a relativistic culture of saying, let's just bring in all the gods and consider all the religions equal. And, and by doing that, they polluted the land and they found God's hand of blessing taken off of it. And God then uh, decided to put them under spiritual discipline. And for 18 years, the Philistines and the Ammonites had just literally wreaked havoc on them. And uh, after 18 years of pain and 18 years of agony, they finally cry out to the Lord their God. And uh, they say, God, it, please come rescue us. And God's answer is very interesting. In verse 14, it says, Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And uh, then they have true repentance. See, they started out by just saying, God, save us. And God says, no, 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 no. You've got you to do it right. And they show true repentance in verse 15, where the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. God, God was hurting for them and aching for them in their time of distress, and this is a time that Jephthah's about to be born into, but true repentance is being manifested. Because you know how they said it? They said, you know what, God, we don't deserve anything other than what you choose to do, 
but please let it only be by your hand we're punished. Don't let us be under the hands of anyone else. And, and they're manifesting a true repentance to God, a heartfelt repentance to God. Not just we're sorry we did it. Not just, oh man, I'm sorry I got caught. It's the idea of I really want to be changed and I want to change my life dramatically and I want to be completely yours. Then in verse 17 it says, then the sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped in Gilead and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon and he shall become the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, what I want to point out to you is, you ready? God's about to deliver in a very interesting way. God looks at them and says, I do believe your hearts are changing. I do believe you're getting right with me. And so you know what I'm going to do? Right before I deliver you, I'm going to put you in a little tougher time. I'm going to make it look a little more bleak. I'm going to prepare you for a victory that's going to be beyond what you can imagine. And so there's a movement that happens. And the Ammonites come into the Gileadite territory. And, and they're camping there. And now as they gather at Mizpah, they say, we can't beat these guys. Who would ever lead us? Who could help us in this? And God wanted them in a position now where they were dependent on him. They were choosing to live holy lives. And, and Jephthah is going to be raised up. But not only was Jephthah born in a bad time, he was treated badly. He was born in a tough time economically, a tough time where in, in bondage, a tough time in a place to live. But he was treated horribly because notice what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Now I want you to notice what they're saying is who is going to lead us, who's going to raise us up. And there's one man whose name stands out beyond all others, Jephthah, but but. He had an inauspicious beginning. Now, obviously God, God would not say that the fact that he was born of a prostitute, that is born of an adulterous relationship, that he was born uh, because out of sexual sin would taint him. And yet the people thought that. All his life it had been carried upon him. All his life he had borne this reproach. And, and so they go, he is valiant but. He is valiant but. And I want you to notice that God is going to use him no matter what other people think. God wants to choose him out of this. And, and it goes in to tell us some of the background that, that had just kind of been born in his life. In verse 2 it says, Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon came and fought against Israel. Now, he has literally been tainted and attacked all his life for his family background. Uh, his father must have loved him enough to go rescue him and take him into his home. But we don't see that he ever knew his mother. And uh, a time and again he was taunted over this. And time and again he was turned on. And then when his father dies and there's no one to protect him, his brothers turn on him out of greed and they drive him out. Now, we need to understand that God hates the fact that we very often separate ourselves with people over different reasons. Uh, because someone, you know, uh, is from a different racial background, they get attacked by us. Or because somebody uh, has had a problem in their past, then people turn on them. Or the, the fact that his brother said, you know what, we want, we want money. And I've watched over the years as uh, families have been torn apart when a relative dies and there's money to be inherited and people begin to fight it out and, and tear at each other and attack each other. And God warns us never to be caught up in greed where we would sell out relationships for money. 
Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Now listen to what it says. And greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. God rates greed, greedy attitudes, materialistic attitudes, where we would choose uh, things over people. And, and we wouldn't understand that, that people matter more. Love matters more. And, and we're not going to get caught up into that. And, and God says, you know, when you become greedy and, and you don't see that people have value and matter and all you care about is getting more and making sure you're taken care of, the Lord says that, you know what, I, I just... My wrath is aimed at you. I, I can't stand that about you. In James 5, 3, James says, Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and consume your flesh like fire. And it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And God says, I want you to know the more and more we see the last days coming upon us, more and more, he says, do away with this whole idea uh, of seeking materialistic uh, possessions uh, instead of really caring for people. It was over money that Judas betrayed Jesus. And uh, it's over money that we've seen people ruin relationships time and time again. And we just can't do that. We just can't allow that to happen. And it needs to be that we value people far more than that. He's driven into the land of Tob. Tob was a, a desert area, a horrible area to live in. And so here he was born into a very difficult time. He is turned on by his brothers. But as a matter of fact, look what it says down here in verse 7. It says, Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? He says, you know, everybody turned on me. Everybody attacked me. And he was surrounded by what he felt were worthless people. And so he is in a bad time, uh, betrayed by his family, uh, uh, driven from his family, living in a lonely place. And God saw all this, and God watches all of this. Uh, hold this and turn over to Psalm 102. I want you to see that, that God is not oblivious to the fact that at times we have devastating feelings going on in our life. I, I never want you to think that uh, when I'm trying to share or teach with you, that I expect that we always walk around with a smile on our face and say, hey, isn't everything wonderful? That's not the true unquenchable optimism that God calls us to. It's not about trying to pretend things aren't hard or bad, but it's about trusting God in the beginning and say, I know a light will come to the darkness that I'm in. I know a day will dawn and joy will overwhelm this kind of pain, but it's not being oblivious to the pain. Look what the psalmist says in 102. It says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. Now notice what he says. For my days have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Have you ever felt like that inside? Have you ever had something hit you and the pain was so great it's just like you just shriveled up and, and, and you just started to die inside? And he says, that's what's happened to me. He says, uh, indeed, I forget to eat bread. I, I'm so devastated about what's going on. I didn't even remember to eat. And uh, in verse 5, he says, because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I have become like an owl in the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. And for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Now, 
This man who's writing this psalm says, I know deep pain. And I got a feeling Jephthah. When I was reading this, I thought of Jephthah. I mean, could you imagine the hurt and pain? His father has died. He has been literally run out of his home and told, nobody wants you. And, and how did the elders get involved? Well, somehow he must have appealed to them and said, this isn't right. And they showed it hatred of him. I mean, he was let down in every way possible. And then he's surrounded and he's in a tough crowd. But you know what? God is not going to let go of him. And the most amazing thing about Jephthah is he refused to let how he was born define him. He refused to let how his society he lived in define him. He refused to let how he was treated define him. And we begin to see, if you watch carefully here, him rise above the situation. He rises out of being driven into the wilderness. He rises to a place that's amazing. And he gets a call to leadership. Look what it says in chapter 11, verse 4. Remember, the Ammonites have now camped uh, and ready to attack the Israelites, the Gileadites, in, in Mizpah. And they're sitting there saying, who can lead us? And they said, you know what? We've got to have Jephthah. We've got to have Jephthah. And so they go to turn to him. And it says in verse 4, it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to him, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight against the sons of Ammon and become the head over all the inhabitants of, the, of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives me uh, gives them up to me. Will I really become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to the Jephthah, the Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do this as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head over them and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all the words of the, before the Lord at Mizpah. He never gave up on God. But here's what I want you to get. If you didn't get it, he forgave. Now you might say, where is that here? He did it. He shows it by action. They come and say to him, come help us, come rescue us, we're in trouble. You know what he could have said? Forget you. I'm living in Tob and I've got my guys and I'm going to be okay apart from it. You guys, you guys will be defeated. You guys will be destroyed. Now you need, he could have just said forget you. But notice he didn't. He said, I want to ask, are you really going to be people of your word? I'm going to ask, are you really ready to make a change? But he was willing to go and actually help the people that had hurt him. Over and over in Scripture, we see God call for us to live lives like that. Jesus said, if you just love those who love you, what good is that? Don't, that that's how everybody lives. He said, if you want to live a radical life, if you want to live a godly life, if you want to live a different life, I want you to love the people who have been the meanest and cruelest to you. I want you to love your enemy. I want you to pray for them when they persecute you. I want you, when they're in trouble, to go and seek to meet their needs. I want you to try to be there for them. And I never want you to be overcome with evil, but I always want you to overcome evil with good. Now, now we're called to live lives like this, and Jephthah chose to live this out by saying, you know what, it, you've hated me, you've attacked me, you've betrayed me, and now I'm going to come and fight with you and for you. I'm going to come and, and be with you in the midst of a dangerous battle that, by the way, the odds are we won't even have a chance to win. And he went and threw himself into the fray and chose to be with them no matter what. In Romans 12, verse 17, it says, Never pay back evil for evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that to me is an amazing life we're called to live, but it's the life of victory, the life where we end up rising up, the life where we're better. And Jephthah is actually living out what Paul would call for us to do. And he says, when you see somebody in trouble, you don't say, well, you weren't there for me. I won't be there for you. You rush to them. You help them. You seek to love them. You seek to meet their need. And Jephthah does that. And God, God is going to draw him into the hall of fame of faith because of his choice not only to forgive and come alongside, but to be courageous enough to go into an amazing battle. Now, he begins the, the confrontation with the Ammonites by offering to negotiate. He sends a letter to them, and I'm just going to go through it really quickly, where he gives four reasons why there should not be a fight. Four reasons why they need to walk away. Now, they're saying, we're going to come and attack you, and we're going to take your land, basically because we're stronger than you are. And he begins to say, well, you shouldn't be doing this, number one, for historical reasons. In chapter 11, 16 to 18, he shows historically that the land that's there has a right to belong to Israel, and historically, Israel's in the right. Uh, he says the second reason's theological. God gave us this land. Uh, your gods gave you your land. You should stay where you're at. But God gave us our land. And so we have theological reasons to be here. Uh, he says we have legal and just reasoning. For 300 years you've never tried to take this land. If it had been unjustly taken, you would have talked to us before about it. But you've never come. And then the last thing is in verse 27. He says this. I therefore have not sinned against you. There's a personal reason we shouldn't fight. I've never been in this problem with you. Let's agree to come to terms. Now I want you to notice he tries to negotiate. And the Ammonites say no. And they turn and get ready to attack him. And then in verse 29 it happens. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now if we just stop there and put a period. What do you think the next line would be? And God would give the victory. He's about to go into a great battle. It says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. He's in the spirit of God. But then he does something. It says so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. That he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah to Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said. If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand. Then it shall be whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me. When I return in peace from the sons of Ammon. It shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering was a total dedication offering. It was an offering you gave to say to God, you know what, I am completely yours. And, and it was burned in such a way that nothing but ashes was there. And he said, God, I promise you this. If you give me victory, I will give whatever comes out to meet me from my house. I am going to give that to you in total dedication with everything I have. And God says, I just want you to know that I'm going to do this. I promise. And uh, Jephthah is in a place where he's bowing to God. Now, but the sad thing is he shouldn't have done it. Too often we find ourselves acting like if we say, you know, God, I promise I, I won't eat meat for this long period of time until this happens. Uh, uh, we think that maybe God will be more honored by that. I've shared before that back when I was doing the ministry like Tony is to the college age, I had college age people all the time making vows. I promise, Lord, for the next year I won't be in a romantic relationship or date anybody until I'm I just going to give one year to you. And, and, I, and then you know what happens? A month later they meet the person of their dreams. I mean, almost there. And, and I can't tell you the number of times I have people come sit and go, what do I do? 
And I'll say, well, you need to honor your vow, but why did you make it in the first place? Why do we feel that God is going to get more excited if we try to make a deal with him? God doesn't want your works. He wants your heart. God, God isn't more moved by us when we think we're more holy because we made this vow. You know, the, the Lord even warns us, you know, there are times you're going to have to vow. When you do, you need to pay it. But he says, I prefer for you not to. And so Jesus in Matthew 5 warns about that. And, and James 5 were warned about it. But, but what happened is he makes this vow. And then he gets an amazing victory. And as he's coming home, his daughter, his only daughter, comes rushing out to greet him, celebrating the victory. And his heart drops. His stomach turns. And he looks at her and says, you have brought me to the lowest of lows. And she's like, why? And he said, because I made this vow to God. I made this vow to the Lord. And the daughter says, then, Dad, you've got to keep it. But let me go away for a period of time to mourn my virginity. And uh, at the end of two months, she returns. In verse 39, it says, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relationships with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days every single year. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to have you wrestle this through with me. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's surprising that someone hasn't come and rescued Jephthah from the vow. Uh, hold this and turn over to Leviticus chapter 5. I want you to see something here because God actually said that he would have been wrong to uh, force her to keep this vow and to, to get up enacting it. Uh, as a matter of fact, what happens if you make a thoughtless vow, the, the law gave you uh, a way to begin to rectify that with him. And I want you to catch how important this is. But first of all, look what it says in Leviticus 5 verse 4. It says, And if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, and whatever a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty of one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty of one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. Now Jephthah had spoken rashly. Jephthah had spoken thoughtlessly. And you know what? God said, okay, you know what? You shouldn't have done it. And when you did it, you sinned. But let me tell you what we're going to do. I want to set you free from it. Now it's going to cost you. You're going to have to make a sin offering to me. What Jephthah should have done was gone and stood at the tabernacle and said, I sinned. I know I led you in victory, but I want you to know as a leader I have, I, I sinned, I blew it, I made a rash vow to God, and I confess that I've sinned. I want to be honest about that. And then he should have said, and now I'm going to make this offering to the Lord, which, by the way, would have been a very expensive offering he would have had to give God. But, but it, God wanted something to be there to, to say, okay, this is your moment to be set free, and I want it to cost you, but I want it to be a place you can look to and say, I'm forgiving you. And his sin would have been forgiven. As a matter of fact, interestingly, uh, it says later on in Leviticus 27.4, if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If he had blown it in the area with his daughter, in Leviticus 27, it says what you need to do is not only confess that you've sinned, not only give the sin offering to God, either the male or either the goat or, or from the flock or the lamb, but I also want you to pay a valuation of 30 shekels, which would be an ark day in time of about $50,000. 
Now, why was God doing this? Again, he wants you to understand the seriousness when you've blown it and a vow against him. And he wants you to take, take some ownership of that. And he wants you to do something that's sacrificial. But he wants you to have a moment in time that says, that's it, it's over, I'm forgiven. Now, that's what God's desire was. Now, I hope you're in Leviticus 5 with me because I want you to actually do something. If you look back at chapter 4, we get into what's called the law of the sin offering and the law of the guilt offering. And, and I want you to notice something with me. It just We're going to do it really quickly. Uh, God talks about uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, if a person sins unintentionally. So the sin offering is for the unintentional sin. Now, if you and I do something and it's wrong and we didn't mean to do it, we didn't intend to do it, that doesn't mean it's not sin. And God says you're guilty of that. Uh, uh, and God wants you to know that. You're actually held guilty for it. But what God wants you to do is not go, oh, I didn't know. God wants you to say, Lord, I didn't know, but now I wanna, I'm going to accept responsibility. And notice what happens here that starts being talked about here. In verse 26, the very last line of the verse says, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. If you look down at 31, it says, thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. And notice, go over at the last verse uh, of chapter 4. It says, uh, and the very last line of it, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Now, whenever things are repeated in Scripture, there's a reason it's repeated. God wants to forgive. God wants to forgive you. He doesn't want to hold it against you. In Jephthah's case, God wanted to forgive him. But let me tell you, if you've committed a sin, guess what God says? I just want to forgive you. And I want to remove it from you. And I want to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I want to hold this over you anymore. I want it wiped away. Now, that was for a sin you didn't mean to do. In chapter 5, we begin the sin that you meant to do. Some people have this kind of weird mindset that says this. Well, if I sin unintentionally, then God's going to forgive me. I understand that. But if I intend to sin, if I plan the sin out, if I put a lot of effort into it, and, and I try to make sure I'm not caught, and then I commit that, guess what? Will God forgive you? You know what the answer is? Yes. Yes, he will. Now, there's some of us who go, oh, I don't like that. You know, there's people out there who, you know, like they're doing, they're planning to do these sins, and I don't think that's right. They should get off with it. But we always mean that to someone else, not us, Right? Because is there anybody here who didn't intentionally plan to do something wrong sometime, even after you became a Christian? And you know what God says? I want to forgive you. I, I want to take this away. And, and, and I want you to grab the heart of God because here is the intentional sin. And by the way, it, it, Jephthah's sin's being talked about here. And notice what it says at the end of verse 10. Uh, so shall the priest make an atonement on behalf of a sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. You go down to verse 13, and it will be forgiven him. Verse 16, and it will be forgiven him. And in verse 17, it says, though he was unaware, he is still guilty. Verse 18, it will be forgiven him. Now, I know a lot of people, when they get to the book of Leviticus, they kind of shy away from it. I love the book of Leviticus. But if you haven't caught the reverberating theme of God's love here, let me say it to you. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done. God says, I want to forgive you. Now, God says, I want to forgive you and cleanse you. I would like you to have a time when it's a major issue where you and I talk this through together and you mark that moment and you accept responsibility for it. But I want to forgive you. You see, that's the most amazing thing about what God is teaching us through Scripture and especially through Jesus. There was a group of uh, theologians that had gathered at Oxford and they were discussing what is it that makes Christianity different from all other religions? 
Have you ever asked that question? Why is it we're different? And, and I'm glad on Wednesdays it's going to be an issue wrestled through and generate. Because we do stand out. And not only we stand out because we're right, we stand out for lots of reasons. But C.S. Lewis was to be in this meeting and he ended up being late getting there. And when he got there and he realized the discussion, they were like, well, what is it that makes us different? Is it the resurrection? Well, the answer is no. There's other religions that have death and resurrection in it. Uh, there's other religions uh, where God takes on human form and comes and walks among people. What is it that makes us stand out? And C.S. Lewis said, well, the, the answer to that is very easy. It's grace. It's the idea that God will forgive you, period. That God will cleanse you, period. That God will love you no matter what. You know, uh, by the way, it isn't that God doesn't see our sins, sins as different. Some of you in this room, you know, you, you have less sin and less grievous sin than others of us. Uh, uh, and you know what? Praise God you haven't done some of those things. But, but I want you to grab this. If your sin, let's say we're just put into the size of a rock, and, and, and the most pure person in this room, your sin was this big. Uh, uh, and, and we go, man, that's awesome you have less sin because my sin would be bigger than the whole stage, all right? Because I've got a lot of sin in my life. And, and, and you know what? I want to tell you that God sees the difference between that. But you know what? We need to understand that, that if we had to be judged on the basis of the sin, what would happen? If I took a rock this big and drop it into a lake, or I took a rock as big as the stage and drop it into a lake, which rock goes to the bottom? They both do. And uh, if you have to be dropped into the lake of fire, you both descend. But you know what God says if your sins are this many? He says, I say forgiven. Never to be brought up again. As far as the east is from the west, I want to remove it. Or if your sins are that many, I say forgiven. For where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And that's what we need to grab hold of here. And God looks at, and Jephthah should, should have been set free from this. God had put into place this amazing system that said, Jephthah, you don't have to have this enacted on you. You don't have to have this done to you. I don't want that to be in. And, and nobody rescued him from it. Nobody rescued his daughter from it. Now, I, I don't want to go on much longer, but let's just go ahead and ask the question, did he kill her? Did he put her to death? Well, I, I want to say that up until just this last time of studying it, if you had asked me and said, Chuck, did he enact the vow? Did he do it? I would have said, well, yes, he did, based on what it says in verse 39, that, you know, at the end of two months, he or she returned to the father and who did to her according to the vow. What was his vow? To kill her, to offer her as a burnt offering. And if he did, it was a horrible action. God was not pleased with it. It was wrong. But you have to be amazed at a daughter who said to him, you know what, Dad, go ahead. Whatever it would take for you to be a great leader, whatever it would take for this nation to be yours, well, I'll, I'll do it. But, you know, uh, the reality is, is that I don't think that's what happened. Uh, here's why. Because when you read that Jephthah's appeal to the Ammonites, he used Scripture, he used the law, he used the heritage of Israel to appeal. So he must have had at least some knowledge of the law. When he uses the term burnt offering, uh, uh, a burnt offering was only to be offered at the tabernacle. The law was clear about that. You just couldn't go offer wherever you want. Uh, and, and so, you know, if he was going to take her and offer her as a burnt offering, he would have had to come to the tabernacle to do it. And I can't imagine a priest 
would have bent to him no matter how strong a ruler he was and allowed the altar of God, the brazen altar, to be polluted by having a human sacrifice on it because that was never allowed. God had made it very clear. We do not allow you to pass your sons or daughters through the fire. You never commit human sacrifice. And so I just can't imagine that occurred. And so I'm going to tell you tonight, I don't think he did. But what probably happened then is that he took her to the tabernacle and he said, you will live here all the days of your life. You'll never marry You'll always serve God. You're always going to be in this place serving the priests. And my lineage will never go on. And uh, I'm not going to be able to see you as often. And, and so I think that's probably what happened. But even if that's what he did, he could have been released from it if he had handled it correctly. Somehow, some way, no one told him. No one helped him. No one freed her. And, and when we miss out on what God says about freedom and love and forgiveness, we miss out on everything. He would later go into another battle. And uh, what would happen is the, the um, Ephraimites would come to him and say, why didn't you allow us to fight with you against the Ammonites? And they said to Jephthah, you know what we're going to do? We're going to literally kill you and burn your house. And he said to them, well, I called to you and you didn't come and fight with me. Which, by the way, he was right about. The Ephraimites were a, a horrible tribe in Israel. They had the worst, uh, uh, maybe except for the Benjamites, the worst uh, uh, record of ever staying faithful to God. In Psalm 78, verse 8, it says this. The sums, uh, it says, and do not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned their back in the day of battle. They, they ran away and so when Jephthah put out the call they went and hid and they came back later and said why didn't you let us fight and he said I did and they said well now we're going to attack you and fight you now that you've been weakened and so what happened is Jephthah rallied the troops and they fought against their own brethren of the children of Israel and they defeat the Ephraimites badly and they they capture them in an area and cut them off where they can't make their way back and as they're trying to wake their way back uh, uh, and to try to get across, what happens is that they would, say, they would say to him, are you Ephraimites? And the Ephraimites would say, no, we're not. And then the Gileadites would say to them, then say Shibboleth. Now, I don't know if you've heard the Shibboleth story before, but I think it's very interesting. So please tune into this. You see, what happens is the Ephraimites could not say the word Shibboleth. They would always say Sibboleth. And the minute they said it, they'd be put to death. That was their way of figuring it out. You, are you an Ephraimite? Well, no, I'm not. Well, are you really not? Well, then you can say the word Shibboleth. Now, it's interesting. The whole idea of Shibboleth then has grown and grown and grown till in all sorts of worse situations, there's been a Shibboleth, an idea of knowing whether someone's right or not. And so in World War II, for instance, on the German side of the battle, what would happen is if a man came walking towards them and they shouted out, are you a U.S. soldier? If he said, yes, I am, you know what they would do? They would ask him a baseball question. And if he didn't have the answer, they would take them prisoner. And until they could figure out whether he was for real or not, because the Germans tried to send spies to us. And so they had a shibboleth, and their shibboleth was baseball questions. On the Pacific side, it was very interesting, though. They came up with a different shibboleth. And the different shibboleth was this. If a Japanese person was caught, because they could still be an American, if they were caught, they would say to them, say the word Lollapalooza. And you know what? Is, is, I'm not trying to be degrading. This is actually historically too. Uh, uh, when Japanese had not been in the United States, even somewhat well-versed, they weren't able to say it correctly. So they would say, Rawapalooza. And they, they wouldn't get it right. Now the sad thing is that what happened in the Philippines and in Okinawa and other places is our soldiers would scream out, say Lollapalooza. If the guy started, Rawa, boom, they just shot him. 
Uh, and later on, uh, General MacArthur had to say, no, no, take him prisoner. But uh, uh, because we want to make sure you kill the right people. The shibboleth. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the show, The West Wing. But uh, I actually enjoyed the show, even though obviously I didn't agree with the reasoning behind it. It was just interesting to watch them deal with issues. Well, one of the shows, the president uh, uh, is, is in a very incredible situation because there's a, a group of Chinese people who had stowed away on a boat and they had come into Los Angeles and they wanted asylum because they said they were being persecuted and tortured. And uh, the president was in the midst of trying to keep our negotiations with China solid. And he thought, if I had grant asylum to them, uh, then it's going to strain us. And, and he kept wondering, the whole show, it just kept recurring back again and again, what was it going to do? Were these people for real? Did they really come here because they wanted to be able to worship God freely? And he brings in the leader of the group and has them sit in the Oval Office. And it was an amazing scene to me because President Bartlett walks in and he looks at him and he says, I, I just am really troubled with how to handle this because we are a land that's free. We are a place that loves religious freedom. So I want to ask you some questions. And he begins to ask him questions from Scripture. Uh, uh, New Testament questions, Old Testament questions. And the guy is just, he knows the answers and he's spouting them off incredibly. And and in the show, uh, what happens is President Bartlett sits down and begins to look at the ground. And this man stands up next to the president and he says, Shibboleth. And President Bartlett looks back. He says, that's what you're doing. You're asking me the shibboleth question, and let me tell you the answer. Mr. President, the shibboleth for Christians is faith. That we know Jesus, that we live with him, that we know we're forgiven. That's what we believe in. That's what we live for. That's what we're willing to die for. And and he says that's the shibboleth of all shibboleths, that we have faith. Why could the Ephraimites not say shibboleth and had to say sibboleth? Because they had lived so closely to the people who were idolatrous. They had got caught up in, in the Ammonites and the Moabite territory. They had become so ingrained with the customs of the world around them, they had missed the shibboleth for them to live life with God, to live life in a pure setting. And I hope that you and I, that we, even though we're in the world, we're not of it. And even though we're caught in the midst of a world that very often is not an easy place to live, that we could say that we're living such a pure life with God, we haven't forgotten the true words, the true shibboleth, that faith in God, godliness, righteousness, holiness matters to us. But what happens if you mess up? Well, over and over and over, God says, I want to forgive you, I want to forgive you, I want to forgive you. And even though there's not a person around who would say that Jephthah did the right thing concerning his daughter, God says, even though Jephthah, you blew it in that, I'm calling you to the hall of fame of faith. God always loves you. God always forgives you. God always cares about you. God always wants you to have the victory. And tonight, I hope that maybe if nothing else flowed out of this, you would see that the word forgiven, forgiven, forgiven is the one that God wants to pronounce on every single one of us. And so, uh, you know what? If one of us messes up, you know what the rest of us are supposed to do? Rush to help them. Uh, And, you know, if one of us messes up and everybody else here knows, we just say, well, we love you. We want to love you the way God loves us. And we're not going to hold it over you. And God doesn't want to. That's God's great desire. Now tonight, if you have not accepted God's forgiveness and his love, if you have some things in your life you feel guilty about, God wants to set you free. If you aren't living in a close, intimate relationship, he wants to share that with you. And the way we access that is by confessing it, by saying it to him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, I know that you love us with everything you have. And we look back at the Old Testament, we still see grace. And I hope that everybody here can see your grace. Because even though there was this law that sat there that showed us what was right and what was wrong, there was your call to forgiveness. No matter what the sin, no matter what the issue, no matter what the problem, there was forgiveness. Because Lord, you want to forgive us and you want us to be close to you and you want nothing to stand between us. And today, even in a more incredible way, through the death of Jesus on the cross and the life you call us to, the word forgiven is to be pronounced over us and grace and coming to you. And I pray we'd never miss that. And I praise you for it. And may we be forgiving to others and may we be loving to others and may we allow you to love and forgive us. Father, I want to ask right now that your Holy Spirit come in this room. I ask, Lord God, that you begin to stir in the hearts and the minds of every single one of us and draw us all closer to you. And Lord, if right now there's somebody here who needs to commit their life to you or recommit their life to you, I pray that you would touch them. I pray you'd stir in their hearts. I pray right now they would know how loved they are. And maybe, Lord, it's just something deep down inside they can sense it, that this is their moment to say yes to you. And I pray that they would. I'm going to ask that we keep praying, but I want to lead a prayer right now that's a prayer to commit your life to Christ or recommit. Tonight, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be in a relationship with Him that's real and and true, I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting to pray this prayer with me. He loves you. And if you're not close to him right now, he wants to be close to you. So if you want to have a real relationship with God that's vibrant and intimate, I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting to whisper some words with me. But I want to have you think about it. Are you ready to do this? Do you want to really know him? And if so, pray these words. Say these words with me. Say, Lord Jesus. I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross for me. And you died to forgive me of all my sins, to make me clean, to make me new, to make me alive. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love. Fill me with your spirit. And help me be who you've created me to be. And to live the life that you have for me to live. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.